Welcome to the Spot Doctor Podcast. I'm Dr. Trevor Cates. Today we're talking about how garlic, onions, kale, and other sulfur-containing foods can actually create issues with your health, including your skin. My guest is Dr. Greg Nye, who is a naturopathic physician and licensed acupuncturist practicing at Immersion Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a graduate of the National University of Natural Medicine with a dual degree in naturopathic medicine and a master's of science in oriental medicine. Dr. Nye is author of The Devil in the Garlic and has spoken around the world on topics related to sulfur metabolism and its associated problems. He has a clinical focus in naturopathic oncology, but treats a wide variety of conditions, including Lyme disease, mold-related illness, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disease, and of course, the wide range of symptoms and diseases associated with impaired sulfur metabolism. In today's interview, Dr. Nye explains how dietary sulfur is essential but there can be issues with how it's metabolized. And this leads to certain health issues, like in some of those cases, skin problems. And this really does answer some questions that I had about why some of my patients had have problems with some of these seemingly healthy foods like garlic and onions and kale. But Dr. Nye explains why certain people have this problem and how to know if you're one of the people that has this sulfur metabolism issue. And he also shares his two-week protocol to overcome issues with sulfur metabolism. So please enjoy this interview. Greg, it's so great to have you on my podcast. Welcome. I'm so psyched to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, we, we went to school together and it's I just haven't seen you in so long that you have a new book that came out and so I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about sulfur because it's something that I, I need to learn more about too, apparently. So I'm excited to have you on and how it impacts our health and we get it in our diet all the time, hopefully, or but it's not always easy for everyone. Yeah, it's a weird thing, you know. Um, sulfur, of course, we have to have sulfur all the time. It, like, um, sulfur is constantly needed by the body in order to make sulfate, which sulfate is doing all kinds of important things. Um, the problem is that the pathways that that sulfur moves through in order to become what it needs to be. So we're not eating sulfate. It, our body has to generate it from the sulfur that we eat. Um, and those pathways can get blocked for various reasons. And when that happens, we still need to have the sulfate. And so our bodies go through some changes to kind of work around the blockage. And it's those changes that cause the symptoms that are associated with the sulfur foods. So it's, it's this, um, it's not like sulfur is bad for people. Um, it, it, it's only a matter of whether or not somebody has an issue processing sulfur. And there's really not a great way to find that out other than to go through this process of um, kind of reducing sulfur intake and doing some therapies to get sulfur processing right again. And, and then we reintroduce and find out how people do. Okay, great. So let's back up for a moment and talk about what, where does sulfur come from in the diet and how does that, because you're, you know, there are a lot of different sulfur-ish words, out, you know, that are around. So we want to make yeah. sure that we're 
focusing on the specific one that is in our food. Right. So, yeah. So, um, all the sulfur in our body is, has come in dietarily. So either there's some small amount in water, um, not all water, but especially people drinking well water can sometimes have lots of sulfate actually in their water that they're drinking. But for the most part, sulfur. So sulfur is just an atom. Uh, sulfur is embedded in food. So it's in protein. Anytime we're eating protein, there's going to be some sulfur compounds in the protein. It's in various vegetables. Um, and so garlic, you know, the title of the book is The Devil in the Garlic because there's sulfur compounds in garlic that we just have found to be quite highly reactive for a lot of people. Um, onions and broccoli and all the foods, many, all of them actually, are foods that we typically think of as very healthy foods. So we're eating these sulfur compounds and um, and then they just have to be transformed. And part of that happens through enzymes in our own body and part of it by the bugs that are growing in our, in our intestine. And so, yeah, the, the way that sulfur becomes kind of a wreck for people has to do with how that transformation takes place from the dietary, just eating those nice healthy things. And then um, some people just have a lot of symptoms eating what they think is supposed to be a healthy meal, you know? Yeah. And, and I, it's something we talk, I talk about a lot about onions and garlic and the benefits of that in my book and, and encourage people to get that. And yeah. because there's so many benefits of it. So how do people know if it's a problem for them? Yeah, it's a, the kind of the, a drag about it is that there's not a great test to do like there's not a blood test you can do i mean you can do food you know like we do these antibody tests to find out if somebody is reactive to this or that food and it's possible to see reactivity to onions or to broccoli or something not all that common i don't think but um but what we're talking about is not that kind of reaction we're talking about a metabolic reaction um and so the only way that i have figured out to successfully identify the people that have the problem is to go through this protocol and there's i mean a, a decent number of times i have people they go through this two-week protocol and they're nothing but just annoyed with me that i had them do that because it didn't really change anything and that's okay you don't have a solver problem but i would say uh, well, i mean significantly more than half of the people who do the protocol will report anywhere from you know, modestly feeling better to, I mean, there have been those occasional people whose life has totally changed by doing it. So, so um, yeah, there's the, the treatment is the same as the test, essentially, like you go through the protocol. And if you find that, oh, yeah, this person is definitely reactive to sulfur, you kind of just continue with the same protocol until you get things restored and you can start to bring those sulfury foods back in. Right. So let's use skin as an example of uh -huh. a, a reaction that some a health issue that somebody might be having that could be related to a problem with um, metabolizing sulfur. Yeah. You know, skin is actually a, a good one to start with because it's one of the most keynote symptoms that I associate with sulfur issues. So um, 
you know, when people have any kind of dermatitis, I mean, lots of patients that I will come in with, you know, periorbital, you know, they have like eczema around their eyes or dermatitis or around their mouth or, or any kind of eczema, rashes, or even just itchy um, and without any lesions, but they just feel like they're itchy. Um, so that is a, if someone has those issues, even if they have nothing else, I'm probably going to have them do the protocol because skin is so reliably responsive to changes in sulfur in the diet. Uh, and I've had, I mean, there's just been so many people who not only have the improvement about their specific lesion, dermatitis or whatever, but who will say that their friends are commenting about how healthy their skin looks and how they have this new, you know, whatever. So skin is, is definitely a primary symptom that flags me that this is going to be a sulfur issue. And then there's just a few other questions that we want to ask to make sure it all lines up. Okay. And what would those questions be? <laughs> uh, well, so the most common uh, things that show up with sulfur would be uh, brain fog is huge because ultimately, actually, just to go back a little bit to um, the what's happening physically when people with the problem are eating sulfur, what ends up happening is that instead of generating sulfate, which the body needs a lot of, SO4 is the chemical, the workaround is that the body generates this gas called hydrogen sulfide. And so in generating that, that's what causes the symptoms. And so it can cause irritable bowel and all kinds of inflammatory gut things. It's a gas, so it will, it will um, go directly into the bloodstream. It just crosses the lining and goes into the bloodstream. And once it's in the bloodstream, it, so hydrogen sulfide is needed for the formation of memory. But if we have too much of it, it messes up uh, it just causes brain fog. Uh, it can cause joint inflammatory kinds of joint pain. It lowers the heart rate. So people often have low heart rate or low blood pressure because it lowers blood pressure. Um, so the, the, that's kind of a constellation of things that, you want, that I'm asking people about. Um, and then also there's this interesting crossover with alcohol metabolism. And so I'm very commonly asking people how they do with alcohol. And I'm not, you know, my point is not to wonder how much they're drinking. My point is that that often when people have a sulfur issue, they're gonna have an alcohol issue. And so commonly you go through the sulfur questions and they've checked off most of the boxes. And then you ask them how they do with alcohol and very commonly say, oh, I can't touch it. it I have the worst, you know, I have one drink and I've got a headache or they have a very severe reaction. And that's that's because uh, there is a, a crossover point, the enzyme that is needed for sulfur processing and the enzyme needed for alcohol processing share a uh, cofactor. And so if there is this cofactor not available, it will shut down both processes. So um, alcohol is another question that I'm always asking. So is there genetic testing, any kind of uh, SNPs or anything that can help identify this issue? Ye uh, yes, ish. Mm -hmm. um, there, so genetics, you know, genetics, I have people run genetic testing all the time. 
and I run it through, you know, there's various databases that we can run those things through. Uh, I, I generally, I think that too much emphasis is put on the role of various polymorphisms, which are what are really being looked at with 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all that. I think those knowing what's happening with the genetics can inform how I'm thinking about why somebody feels the way they feel. But it's not uncommon at all that someone comes into me and they've essentially diagnosed themselves as having the, the disease of like a, a MTHFR problem. But I mean, there's no such thing. There's simply the status of a gene and that may or may not play itself out you know, depending on how we live and how we eat and how we think. And I mean, all kinds of factors determine how the genes express. So, but in answer to your question, yes, there are certainly genes that are associated with sulfur pathways. And I'm very commonly doing a review to see if, um, if we see it line up that, oh yeah, this person has some some polymorphisms that I would expect to lead to sulfur issues. So sometimes we see that and sometimes we don't. Um, so I find genetics to be helpful, but certainly they don't, they, they don't determine anything about how I'm going to treat. Okay. So that doesn't change the protocol. So I want to, I want you to explain the protocol that you uh, recommend, but before you do that, I want to mention supplements because there's certainly supplements that a lot of people take that have sulfur components to it. So they may also be taking those supplements, yeah. right? And having problems with them. That is such a great point that you bring up because I have had a you know, number, whatever, half a dozen people who show up and they are feeling crappy for about three years. And they tell me that it's because they're detoxing. Um, because they're taking lipoic acid and glutathione and methionine and, you know, all these heavy sulfur compounds. And once I understood what sulfur problems look like, it's like, oh, this, they're not detoxing. They're toxifying themselves with this stuff and essentially doing nothing more than getting them to stop all that stuff. And it's like their health improves by 80%. Um, and so, yes, there are many, many compounds, many of the supplements that contain sulfur for a good reason, because it is part of, it's part of the way our bodies detoxify. We have to have adequate amounts of sulfur in order to run those sulfation pathways that are completely necessary for detoxification. The problem is that sulfur is also used for other things in the body besides detoxification. And when the sulfur that's used in those other areas of the body gets messed up by environmental things that we're exposed to, or I mean, all kinds of chemicals will impact things in addition to dietary issues or whatever. Um, that's when everything gets messed up. So I kind of lost the central point that yes, there's supplements that are absolutely, we have to get people to stop taking those while they're going through this low sulfur protocol. Okay, and just to clarify, these supplements aren't a problem for everyone, but there are certain people right. that are having yes. a problem with them. Yeah, absolutely. You want people to be able to take them because there are a lot of benefit to it. You just have to address the metabolism issue so that they can take them, right? That's absolutely it. Like glutathione is so important. Everyone should take it 
unless you got a really bad sulfur problem, in which case you got to fix that and then start taking glutathione because we all need it. I'm so glad we're talking about this because it answers this question why some people are taking these supplements and they're having a problem. And it's been a little bit of a mystery to me why some people can't tolerate them. So let's talk about, let's go ahead and talk about your protocol. What exactly do you recommend to help address this issue? Yeah, so, and keep in mind that I work with a nutrition therapist, Maria, and she wrote the dietary protocol. Um, I mean, there's a list of the usual suspects of foods that people are most likely to be reactive to. And, and there's the, you know, the list of the top, I think, 10 or 12 are in the book, but they are um, garlic by far and away. It's crazy how many people have resolution of their symptoms through the protocol. And as soon as they reintroduce garlic, all their symptoms are back. Um, it's clearly the most reactive sulfur source. Uh, garlic and onion and kale, kale's another shocker. Many people will be symptomatic reintroducing kale. Uh, eggs and then the cruciferous, so broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus. Oh no, that's not cruciferous, but it's another one of the sulfurs, um, Brussels sprouts. Uh, and we also have people, at least for the first week, um, it's vegetarian because our, the biggest source of sulfur coming in is through um, is with meat products. And so now it's odd to me that very, very few people become symptomatic when they reintroduce like chicken or turkey, even though they're a very dense sulfur source. So there's something unique about the sulfur as it's packaged in meat that that it doesn't seem to be reactive, not nearly as reactive as this, the um, reactions we see with the other vegetables. Um, but those are the main foods and they go out of the diet for two weeks. And then there's various kinds of supplements that support the process depending on, you know, I use crazy amounts of molybdenum. I mean, not, I'm not using a lot with each person, but I, I am giving everybody molybdenum. Uh, because that's this funky little trace mineral. It's the one that crosses over with alcohol. Um, you have to have it in order to, to properly generate sulfate. And so molybdenum and there is, um, oh, there's a particular form of vitamin B12, hydroxycobalamin, which lowers hydrogen sulfide levels. Um, I'm often given, uh, because many, many people that I'm working with have gut issues in addition to whatever else they might have. And so often part of this process is that you gotta get their gut working again or else they're never gonna be able to have their sulfur. Um, and so in addition to whatever I might be doing to support sulfur metabolism, they're also, you know, like butyrate or, um, or glutamine or, you know, the various things that we do to get guts healed up. We gotta be doing all that stuff at the same time that we're working on lowering the sulfur intake because that lowers the inflammation level. And while the inflammation is low, we can get the gut rebuilt and then hopefully it can all come back together um, to expand the diet out. Because, because one point I do wanna make for sure is that it is not a good thing to eat a restricted diet for a long time. Mm -hmm. And people get into this, they get stuck in an alley where they can't get out of it because they have willed away all these foods that they have been reacting to. 
until I, I seriously just had a conversation yesterday with somebody who's eating three foods. That's it. Nothing. And that is a nightmare for our digestive tract because the diversity of our gut bugs goes down, down, down. And once that diversity is lost, you can't digest the foods that you used to be able to digest because the bugs aren't there. So punchline is we have to, so we bring the diet down by limiting those sulfur foods for a period of time. And then we have to move the diet back out. Our goal is to not have people eating that restricted diet for a long time. So in that sense, it's a very different kind of a diet than, you know, the, the low sulfur diet is a therapeutic diet. It's like a prescription. You do this for this period of time and then you're done. As opposed to something like paleo diet or, you know, ketogenic diet, which people do for years and they do fine on that. That's not the intention with the low sulfur diet. Right. I think what you're talking about is so important because I too, I also have seen people with these very restrictive diets and they're, there's. And most people can't live like that, but there are certain people that are like, I'm just fine with this really restrictive diet. And I would try and remind them, it's not a healthy uh, way to live because you've got to get to the root cause. There's a reason why you can't eat all these foods. And we have to yeah. figure out why that is. We have to heal your gut. And now, you know, I'm learning from you about the, the sulfur metabolism. It makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's one of the... Um, one of the most important lost messages in this, you know, now we're, I mean, there's so many different diets out there that people are doing now and, and some, and it's so common that a patient is doing like four different kinds of restrictive diets all overlapped with each other, which is like, I mean, that is such a, um, it's like, yeah, that doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work for people, but they don't know what else to do because they feel miserable if they don't eat that way, which I get it. Um, and so, you know, the imperative is on us, I think, as practitioners to educate people about the fact that that's not going to be sustainable. And, you know, our job then is to do that work of helping people get their gut in a place where they can eat what they used to be able to eat, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't come into the world reacting to all these foods. We acquire those reactions. And so it's, it's unraveling that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, so with your protocol, then you're adding in some nutrients and then also taking out the sulfur foods for two weeks. You're supporting gut health. What am I missing anything? Like, that's that's the, the protocol is really. Well, uh, and then yeah, so I mean, that's the main thing. So we have to lower the intake and we have to speed up the outflow of these sulfur compounds that get generated. And keeping in mind that. We can eat a low sulfur diet, but in, unless we're fasting, we're not eating a no sulfur. We're, there's always sulfur coming in. And besides the sulfur that we're taking in, the mucous membranes that are always kind of flowing and getting part of the digestive process, it's all loaded with sulfur. And there are bugs specifically that, that will harvest the sulfur out of the sulfomucins that end up in our gut. So our there's always going to be a supply of sulfur to the body. It will just keep recycling. But what we're trying to do is lower the, sometimes there's this deluge of, I mean, because people are cramming their morning smoothie full of kale and putting garlic in everything year round. I mean, these foods used to be seasonal, but now they're not seasonal, they're year round. And there's one enzyme that will convert SO3, sulfite, which our bodies make, 
to SO4. There's only one. And so all of that sulfur that comes in is gotta go through this tiny little enzyme, not all of it, some goes to do other things, but lots of it has to get converted to sulfate. And there's only that one enzyme to do it. And so there are many things that we do to slow down the function of that enzyme. And so if we're, if we're loading our diet with all these sulfur compounds, I think it just overwhelms the system and it just backs up and up and up until it spills. And spills just mean symptoms start. And so what we're trying to do is dramatically lower the amount coming into the bucket and also speed up the amount draining out of the bucket. And so that allows the overall level of those sulfur compounds to just reduce in the body in general. And then once we've done all that, so we've done that with the diet, we've done it with some specific nutrients that either lower hydrogen sulfide out in the body or that speed up the function of that enzyme that is doing the conversion or you know other kinds of uh, supplements that are addressing other enzymes that function within the sulfur pathways. Um, so we do those things and then you know for home therapies one of the most I mean just crazy when I realize how helpful it could be Epsom salt baths. Who knew you can there are some people whose guts improve like 80% just by doing Epsom salt baths. So I mean you got to do it in a pretty serious way, which is to say four cups of Epsom salt dissolved in a bath, hot bath, soak for 20 minutes, seven nights in a row to start with. Wow. Uh, and then after the initial seven nights, and for some people I have them do 10 nights or even two weeks. Um, but then periodically you gotta do maybe two or three of those nightly. And the reason is because that's magnesium sulfate. That sulfate goes, into the blood transdermally, we know because somebody did a study on that. So Epsom salt baths in that high concentration will build up the sulfate levels in the blood, which is great because it doesn't have to go down the tube and run into the bugs that cause the problems. And so you get the sulfate that way. And the thing is, if you can increase your sulfate level in that way, you don't need the bugs anymore. The bugs are there to fulfill a purpose. So we have this idea that we have, you know, the kill the bugs thing, you know, like in the SIBO world or in, you know, gastroenterology in general, when you got bugs that you don't want, you kill them somehow, whether with herbs or with antibiotics or whatever. What I think is those bugs are there because they're trying to do something that we're not doing otherwise. So if we can fix the problem, which is to get sulfate into our system with things like Epsom salt baths, we don't need the bugs anymore. That's the only thing that makes sense to me for why somebody could do Epsom salt baths in the way that I just described and tell me that they have dramatic improvement in their digestion, hmm. which, and not doing anything else. These are people that just send me emails because they heard a podcast or something like this and they try it because they can just do it at home and, you know, they have an improvement. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, yeah, very amazing. Okay. And also, you know, another thing that uh, I'm kind of late to think about this, but I'm kind of bummed that I didn't learn about it. I mean, I knew about it, but grounding, um, which is this, you know, the whole idea of just putting your feet on the earth. And um, part, this is more um, boring kind of biology that I'll go into, but Part of the importance of these sulfur compounds is that they supply negative charge in the body. And so um, 
one of the effects of having your body on the earth, touching the earth, is that electrons flow into you, giving you this big bunch of negative charge. And there are lots of studies that will show all these beneficial effects of just standing on the earth for a while every day. So it's another thing, and I think it's just good for people to do. So Epsom salt baths, grounding, um, those are two things that are that everyone is doing along with you know the rest of the protocol. Okay. And so two weeks, what do you notice in two weeks? Is or do you good continue it longer for people? Because you mentioned two weeks on the diet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um it's sometimes we'll go longer. Um, typically what the typical, uh, let's say we got somebody who is definitely, they got a sulfur problem, but we don't know that. So we put them on the protocol. One of the first signs that we know that, okay, this really is a sulfur problem is that they feel like hell for about the first three days of that protocol. So whatever they had, they feel worse and they really don't like us. And, um, you know, their skin is worse and their fatigue and headache and just, and we're saying, yes, that's awesome. And just, and so they stay with it. And usually what happens around day four or five, it's like the clouds part and the sunlight shines in and everything is awesome. And they feel like their brain clears up and their skin starts clearing up and, and it all like everything transforms. That is a common pattern for things. Um, and then, you know, by the end of two weeks, we start the reintroductions and we just watch for symptoms to show up. And typically it's very rare that somebody is reactive to all the foods that they eliminated. Usually they're reactive to one or maybe two. Um, and we can identify that food and then, okay, you can bring all the rest in and hold that one out or keep it minimal. Um, another pattern would be that people are on it and it's a much more gradual. They don't really go through what Marie and I call the sulfur dump, which, because I don't know what else to call it, but something that causes that exacerbation. It just, I think it's just mobilizing a bunch of compounds that we're not getting mobilized. Um, but other people, they don't have that, but they, it's a more gradual process, but can definitely say that, you know, by the end of the two weeks, you know, what if they came in, you know, gas and bloating or what are the most common symptoms that are associated with it? And very common by the end of two weeks, people don't have that at all. Um, or, you know, brain fog or whatever their symptom was, they're just describing it's reduced by some, usually a pretty significant amount. Um, there are, you know, some people, the way that I would go longer than two weeks is if somebody really is not doing well until maybe day 10, and then they start to notice their skin is starting to clear up at that point. Well, okay, then I'll, you know, extend it a little beyond, but I don't like to go too far beyond there. Um, and then, you know, obviously there are the people that it doesn't do anything for, and then, all right, well, let's go to plan B. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, I don't think sulfur issues explain everything, but I do think it's one of the more overlooked uh, ways that we can kind of investigate why somebody feels the way they feel. Right, absolutely. And it seems simple enough. Like what you're describing doesn't seem that hard especially if you give it two weeks and within that two weeks if you don't notice a difference then maybe that's not the issue we want to look at something else but if it is then yeah. you can start eating these foods again which is so great um, yeah i and you know even the people who don't really notice significant change by the end of two weeks 
I still always have them reintroduced one by one um, because often people will say, oh yeah, I, I, there's that headache that I used to have and that they don't really even think about. But um, so it's not, there are times when somebody will still notice a reaction once introducing a food, even if they didn't really notice the benefit. Um, but there are others who just doesn't help at all, and which is fine, you know? That's awesome. It's not a sulfur problem. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit. So it's great to know that that's an option for people to find that out, to address this issue. So for people who aren't necessarily having a sulfur issue, but you mentioned some things that something that was interesting to me that I want to bring bring back up. And that is that we tend to overdo it with garlic and kale and certain things. Like we, that's so typical of our culture that we find something that is good. And so we're like, let's get more yeah. of it. Let's put kale yeah. in everything that we consume. So let's, yeah. I want I you to talk more about that. What is the right amount and how often should we be eating things like garlic and kale? You know, um, I would say there's no, like, I don't think there's a general answer to that. I do think that um, if we were to get back to eating seasonally, I think it would be, um, it would dramatically lower the amount of sulfur that we're taking in generally. Um, but there are, I mean, there's certainly people who can obviously have lots of it and have no negative effects. I mean, I actually do fine with sulfur. I don't personally have a sulfur issue. And I've never discovered an amount of kale or garlic or whatever that causes me any kind of symptoms. But there are other people who even, I mean, if they get a whisper of garlic in their food in any way, they'll have a headache or their neck pain comes back or a rash or, I mean, the variability is quite dramatic. Hmm. Uh, and I mean, I have my ideas about why that would be, but I, I, I don't know of any guidelines really for people other than don't be ridiculous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Moderation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course that's key. And you know, I, I have, uh, I, I kind of, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I don't know when kale is in season. Is that, it, it, it's, is it a fall crop? <laughs> Guess I need to do some research on that because <laughs> we do, we have, gotten so far away from seasonal eating and I live in Park City, Utah. We, we really don't have much in the way of certain seasons. We don't have a long growing season. So we get so much of our produce just, you know, brought into. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, it's universal. You know, and another issue actually, um, even with local eating. So it so happened, Maria pointed this out to me. I didn't realize that Pacific Northwest where I am, is an area where the soil is is depleted in molybdenum that funky little mineral that is needed to process sulfur and so even if someone is eating nice local organic grown stuff we're not getting necessarily adequate amounts of molybdenum in our diet that way and so um you know, there are a lot of, there are other reasons besides toxicity. Of course, I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book about glyphosate, Roundup glyphosate, and which is like, it is like it was scientifically designed to mess up sulfur metabolism. It's just crazy what it does to sulfur. Um, and I've written a lot about that. But um, so clearly you have to look at toxicity issues, but also 
you know, just local organic foods may not be enough to keep us processing all this stuff the way we need to anymore. But I got away from your point about seasonality, which, um, you know, I think, I mean, I agree. I'm, I'm tragically ignorant about exactly what the seasons are for the various kinds of foods. And I know that there are great resources um, to be doing that. And even a whole, I mean, I think there are whole diet programs that are just about seasonal eating things. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is a, an excellent way to focus a diet generally. Right. And I agree. I, you know, I think we live in a time now where we're exposed to more toxins than we were really designed to be exposed to. So taking supplements and doing certain um, naturopathic treatments, functional medicine treatments can be helpful and important part of healthy living. It's not just most of us cannot just depend upon food alone today. Yeah. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it is. Um, I I mean, I'm sure you know as well. There are many people who come in and they want to they want to just do everything with their diet and not have to take. You know, not, why I don't want to take supplements. I want to get it all from my food, which is awesome. I mean, I think that's a great goal. But I think that we are we've created just such a wreck of a modern world with and all the different ways that our health can be impacted and all the stuff that we have to detoxify just as, as a, just in the course of getting through our day um, that we do have to supplement along with that healthy diet, I think, in order to keep all this stuff running the way it needs to. Yeah. A question I have is how can we grow food in a way that's free of pesticides or, you know, organic mm -hmm. um, and sustainable with nutrient soil? Like, is that, is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> or you're like over another planet. Four different diets over time. Yeah. Um, uh, so wait a minute. What's your what is the question? How I'm just do doing we more of a statement? I didn't expect you to have an answer. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> no, that is the challenge. I mean, that's the real, you know, that's the paradox of living in the modern world that that we know what we're supposed to do, but it's impossible to do it. Like to like even people eating a predominantly organic meal still have glyphosate in their system. Like there are studies that show that even organic eaters, because it's so prevalent in our environment. And um, so they're just things that even if we don't know that we're exposed to them, we're exposed to them. And, you know, we do our best. You know, I, I think about naturopathic medicine as I, I just think of it as risk management and damage control. Like those are the two things that we are trying to accomplish. And so we manage our risk the best we can. We eat organic whenever we can and exercise and local foods and all that managing risks. And then there's going to be damage that we can't even mitigate. And so control the damage, take glutathione as long as it works for your system. Um, you know, th there are various nutrients that you just do. You just got to, you know, vitamin D, even people live in sunny places. Now we're not making enough vitamin D for all kinds of reasons. One of which is glyphosate because it interferes with the activation of the vitamin in our system. Um, so, you know, we gotta, we gotta mitigate those risks that are those damages that are just part of being in this world. Yeah. And I don't want it to sound like we're ending on a negative downer <laughs> note here, 
what you're actually saying is a is is a positive solution. There is a solution, and that you know, but it does require some probably for most people anyway to taking some supplements and making sure you're taking the right ones and the right amounts. And so, working with a naturopathic physician or a well-trained functional medicine doctor, somebody like that can can help you identify what your unique needs are. Yeah, I really think, um, I agree, this is not ending on a downer, because this is, it's that kind of awareness that allows people to be proactive about their health. Like you, um, like there are, there are basic things that we can do to maintain a level of wellness that is much higher than we might be able to do just by what we think we should do, which is, you know, just eat a lot of garlic and onions or, um, you know, the way we eat organic um, or, you know, exercise or whatever. There are a lot of people doing everything that seems like it should be the right thing, but they still feel miserable. And like part of that being proactive is simply to know what some, what can be inhibitors of feeling fully vital, even in somebody who feels that they're doing all the right things. Like that is, that's the whole role of working with a naturopath who kind of has a, a different way of assessing what it means to do things that are, that are health supporting and getting, getting those pathways unblocked and all that with supplementation and, and other kinds of dietary things or whatever. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Greg, it's been so fun having you on. Will you tell everyone where they can learn out more <laughs> about you and your book, your new book? Yeah, so uh, the new book, uh, you can get it on Amazon and you know all those places that you can get books. Um, it's called The Devil and the Garlic. And about me, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and at a clinic called Immersion Health, which is at immersionhealthpdx.com. Uh, my, my clinical focus is generally oncology, um, but I see all kinds of other stuff. So I work with digestive and all of that. So that's my main gig. And there's all kinds of stuff on the web page about exactly what I'm doing and kind of therapies I'm using and all that. So um, but yeah, that's my, that's my deal. And thanks so much for having me on and getting to talk about this stuff. Yeah, great. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview today with Dr. Greg Nye. To learn more about him and where you can get his book, you can go to thespadoctor.com, go to the podcast page with his interview, and you'll find all the information and links there. While you're there, I invite you to join the Spa Doctor community so you don't miss any of our upcoming shows and information. And you can find out what messages your skin is trying to tell you about your health at theskinquiz.com. Find out your skin personality type and how that's connected to the root causes behind skin issues at theskinquiz.com. I also invite you to join us on social media. The Spot Doctor is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Pinterest. Join us there, and I'll see you next time on the Spot Doctor podcast. <laughs>